Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got a couple of stories about grant money flowing into our region to support a variety of projects, as well as a couple of different stories about wildlife mortality in our area. Will David is here with his exclusive WOMR weekend weather outlook, and Ira Wood has a matter of opinion about stealing stuff from work. Harwich Elementary School and Edgartown School on Martha's Vineyard put emergency procedures into place Tuesday morning after police in both communities received calls containing threats to the schools. The threats were not considered credible by police. The calls, known as swatting, are believed to be part of a trend that began on Monday when many communities across the state received threats that were later deemed unfounded, according to Dave Procopio, a spokesperson for the Massachusetts State Police. Harwich Police Sergeant Aram Goshgarian described the situation as a series of robocalls that's been plaguing towns throughout the Commonwealth over the last few days. Other affected schools included Clinton, Concord, Duxbury, East Boston, Fall River, Hingham, Braintree, and Westfield. In Harwich, procedures included a stay-in-place exercise, moving outdoor recess inside of the building, and confirmation that the building was secure, according to a statement from the Monomoy Regional School District. Police searched the premises with support from the state police and found nothing to confirm the threat. In its statement, the district asked that families not call or come to the school, as it creates additional safety challenges and causes disruption. The Harwich police were anticipating the threatening calls after the rash of incidents began on Monday. The police responded with all of the officers on duty at the time, but they weren't expecting to find a problem based on the information from other locations across the state. The spokesperson for the state police said the threats received on Monday and Tuesday all contained similar content. He said state police patrols, canine teams, and the state bomb squad responded to many of the incidents, including in Harwich and Edgartown, with local police. Every school was cleared, and the threats were determined to be hoax calls. The investigation into the source of the threat is ongoing. A national nonprofit with a focus on preserving waterfowl habitat has agreed to bring its expertise and a substantial sum of money to help the Herring River Estuary Restoration Project in Wellfleet. Memphis, Tennessee-based Ducks Unlimited will partner with the other local, state, and federal organizations working to restore the salt marsh that once spread over 1,100 acres across Wellfleet and Truro. Ducks Unlimited will contribute $2 million in grant money to support the removal of the vegetation that has choked the area following the construction of the Chequesset Neck Dyke in 1909. The dyke was built to control mosquitoes and create arable land by restricting the flow of water from Wellfleet Harbor to the Herring River. 
But the process changed the ecology, harmed water quality, fish, and wildlife. Part of the work that's currently underway is clearing the vegetation from Duck Harbor, which is part of the former salt marsh, and that's where Ducks Unlimited comes in. The organization started clearing trees and shrubs at the end of January, and will work on clearing the invasive Phragmites, a pervasive wetland reed, to boost the return of salt marsh plants. A biologist from Ducks Unlimited explained that the reed is not salt tolerant, so as salt water increases over time, the marsh will eventually get to the point where it can manage itself. Plans for Herring River restoration include replacing the dike with a bridge and tide control gates, and managing vegetation and sediment to help the marsh recover. Ducks Unlimited will also apply some of its grant money to address berms that were built along the Herring River and some of its tributaries. The funds will pay for an engineering survey and an investigation into what to do with the berms. When the bridge is built and the new tide gates are at work, it is expected that the area will begin to convert back to salt marsh. Vegetation clearing has already resulted in some reemergence of native salt marsh plants. The bridge is scheduled for completion in 2025. It's expected that the project will benefit wildlife that depends on salt marsh habitats, aquatic life that depends on it for breeding, and help to create healthier, larger shellfish beds. According to Ducks Unlimited, the Herring River estuary is currently the largest tidally restricted estuary in the Northeast, and the project is a -a once-in-a-century opportunity to address the impacts of past generations. On the subject of Wellfleet wildlife, a dead bobcat was found on the Chiquesset Neck Road dike on Monday. The animal could have been the victim of a vehicle strike and is considered to be the furthest out on the Cape that a bobcat has been documented, according to Dave Waddles, a biologist with the State Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. It is believed to be the first confirmed report of a bobcat in Wellfleet. The age and the gender of the animal are currently unknown. The deceased bobcat is slated to be transferred to U.S. Department of Agriculture biologists for testing. Documented bobcat sightings are uncommon on Cape Cod. In 2013, officials confirmed a sighting in Falmouth that was believed to be the first documented bobcat on Cape Cod since colonial times. Before European colonization, it is believed they were widespread across Massachusetts. Like many species, they were nearly wiped out following European colonization due to habitat loss and persistent hunting and trapping. The restoration of farmland, reforestation, and regulation of hunting has led to their recovery. Bobcats that make it to the Outer Cape probably cross the canal bridges on foot, and it's unclear if there is a breeding population of bobcats on the Cape. For those on the outlook, the bobcat is approximately twice the size of a domestic house cat. It can be easily identified by its short, bobbed tail, prominent face ruff, and slightly tufted ears. Adult bobcats can weigh up to 35 pounds and measure as much as 47 inches in length. As work begins on the Nauset Regional High School renovation project, the girls' basketball players will be the last to use the high school's gym. Their junior varsity and varsity games tonight will mark the end of 51 years of play in the gym. 
The project moves into full swing over the winter break next week, after which students will return to a rearranged school. The athletic director's office, trainer's office, and weight room will be moved into the auditorium area. The playoff-bound boys' basketball team will practice in the Nosset Regional Middle School in Orleans until the end of the season. The indoor sports teams will use the middle school and elementary school gyms over the next year until the new facilities are ready. Games held on outdoor fields won't be affected by the construction, although players will have to make do with temporary changing rooms in the auditorium area because there will be no locker rooms. The closure may last through next winter, according to Nosset Athletic Director John Matson. The gym is being rebuilt as part of a $169.1 million renovation and reconstruction of the high school, which is scheduled to be finished by fall of 2025. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. In Wellfleet, lawyers for Great White Realty and the town have asked a state land court judge to sign off on an agreement that would put an end to three court cases and two years of legal wrangling. Under the town's deal with Great White, GFM Enterprises, a Dennis-based excavating company, will be able to store sand, topsoil, and gravel on the property. Concessions by Great White and GFM include an agreement not to access the property via Old Wharf Road and allowing the town's building inspector to enter the property without notice to respond to any imminent threat to health and safety. Trees will be planted along the perimeter of the property, and Great White must install stockade fencing to buffer the neighborhood until the cypress trees form a solid wall. The motion for judgment filed earlier this month came as a surprise to those who live near the property on Route 6 near Marconi Beach. The attorney representing the abutters said those in the neighborhood are not at all satisfied with the compromise negotiated by the town. Although abutters weren't part of the land court cases, they provided written testimony in support of a request by the town last fall for an injunction that would stop the contractor's yard from operating while the cases were decided. Instead, the injunction was put on hold while the agreement was hammered out at the urging of the land court judge, according to Wellfleet Town Administrator Rich Waldo. The debate about the use of the property dates back to early 2021, when Truro residents Donna and Steve DiGiovanni operating as the Great White Realty Group, purchased the lot and cut down trees, removed topsoil, and began grading. They had not secured any permits, and their actions prompted a cease-and-desist order from Paul Fowler, the building inspector at the time. Fowler's action was upheld by the Zoning Board of Appeals, which also denied two special permits related to the operation. Great White's attorney, Ben Zender, appealed the order and the zoning board's denials in land court in May of 2021. Meanwhile, GFM Enterprises leased the site and began operating a satellite contractor's yard there 
despite the orders from the town. Zender has argued that activity on the site is an allowed use in the commercial district, falling under the definition of a contractor's yard. The zoning board's position has been that GFM's operation goes beyond the intent of the local bylaw and is an industrial use rather than a contractor's yard. The attorney for the abutters said the agreement negotiated by the town fails to protect the neighborhood and fails to honor or enforce decisions of the Zoning Board of Appeals. Over the last few weeks and months, increasing numbers of dead seagulls have been turning up on Provincetown beaches. After specimens were collected for testing, preliminary results on the great black-backed gull carcasses found on the harbor beach are consistent with avian influenza, confirming suspicions reported in the Provincetown Independent last week. A scientist at Tufts University tested the samples on February 9th. The lab there conducts preliminary avian influenza testing for wildlife clinics across the Cape. When tests suggest the presence of the H5N1 virus, the lab submits the samples to the Federal National Veterinary Services Laboratory in Ames, Iowa. Getting further confirmation from the Federal lab will probably take a while. Researchers are still awaiting word on putative positive test samples sent by the lab to the Federal facility as early as November. Only after confirmation of those results will the detections appear on the USDA's database. Outer Cape residents should continue to avoid direct contact with dead or sick wild birds and report suspected cases to mass wildlife. If infection in a backyard poultry flock is suspected, the owners should report instead to the Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources through its poultry disease reporting form. They can expect to be contacted by the Division of Animal Health staff. MDAR and the USDA encourage domestic poultry owners to take measures against H5N1 by preventing all contact with wild birds and avoiding exposure to droppings and feathers, both of which can carry viral material. You can visit the USDA's Defend the Flock Resource Center for more information at aphis.usda.gov. A local civil rights icon has passed away. John Reed died on Friday, February 10th due to complications associated with Parkinson's disease and a stroke he suffered in September of 22. A former African-American history and social studies teacher and equity officer at Barnstable High School, Reed founded the Barnstable County Human Rights Advisory Commission in 2005 and created the Human Rights Academy for Cape students, established the annual Human Rights Awards Breakfast and the Friends of the Human Rights Fund. In 2021, he received the commission's Rosenthal Community Champion Award. Reed also served as vice president and president of the NAACP Cape Cod and co-founded the Zion Union Heritage Museum in Hyannis in 2007, along with Harold Toby, 
the first black police officer for the town of Barnstable. The museum was created to celebrate African-American, Cape Verdean, Wampanoag, Brazilian, and Caribbean people and their histories. Also a teachers' union president, Reed was awarded the 2008 Human and Civil Rights Award from the National Education Association. In 1973, Mr. Reed founded the Imani Club, a group that gathered once a week to talk about cultural history and took students of color to Boston for field trips and college tours. Artist Carl Lopes, the former head of Barnstable High School's art department, said the Imani Club was one of Reed's greatest gifts to the community. Reed's efforts to support students of color extended into Falmouth High School. Deborah Dagwan, a former Barnstable School Committee and Barnstable Town Council member, was a member of the Imani Club, and her experience motivated her to launch the Cultural Awareness Club at Falmouth High School. Reed and Dagwan also started Gospel Impersonators in Falmouth in the 1990s, a program that explored the history of gospel music and included people of all ages. For the last 15 years, Reed helped cultivate a vision behind the Zion Union Heritage Museum. David Purdy of the Martin Luther King Jr. Action Team often worked with Reed on cultural events at the museum. One spring, Purdy said, Reed collected a huge amount of golf bags and golf clubs from yard and estate sales, stashing them in the museum. It turned out that Reed had created a summer program for kids to learn to play golf. Since his death only a week ago, stories about the man and his works have continued to come out, revealing a life full of talent and accomplishment. His influence reached many, assuring that the effects of his actions will be felt for generations to come. Rest in power, John Reed. And finally today, Independence House, the Cape's leading domestic and sexual violence emergency housing resource and advocacy center, has been awarded a federal grant of $3.46 million. The funding will allow the agency on Bassett Lane in Hyannis to construct a new counseling and resource center next to the current office. The award was announced this week by U.S. Representative William Keating. Independence House Executive Director Lisetta Herge Putnam described the grant as momentous and transformative for the organization. The nonprofit provides a 24-7 hotline and help for teens in unhealthy relationships along with housing, legal assistance, and basic needs for individuals and families. Herge Putnam said the building where Independence House is based no longer meets its needs. The new 2,700-square-foot building will include energy-efficient construction, improved access, and increased safety and privacy to help new clients and provide additional services for existing clients. Under discussion for three years, the new space will include an expanded food pantry and specialized therapeutic spaces to support the mental health and safety needs for adults and children exposed to domestic and sexual violence. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn.
This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. After an unusually warm and in many cases record-breaking stretch of weather, a strong cold front will impact the local area through tonight. Gusty winds and periods of rain will accompany the front, and those shifting in gusty winds will briefly bring significantly cooler air late tonight and tomorrow. This cold shot, nothing more than seasonal air for this time of the year, will be short-lived as a warming trend quickly begins on Sunday. Now, next week, a couple of weak disturbances will race across the region from the Midwest with a chance of showers both Monday and again Wednesday night or Thursday. Our global models have been split over that late week storm. The European has at times been rather bullish with the Canadian and American models less impressed with the overall scenario. But this is the main takeaway regarding the long term. No matter what happens next week, and as I alluded to last week, there are some strong signals of much colder air reloading across Canada and oozing into the continental U.S. If this happens, areas from the Midwest to New England stand a much better chance of snow toward the end of the month and the beginning of March. It wouldn't surprise me that after one of the warmest climatological winters on record, we end up with a somewhat colder than average beginning to meteorological spring. So will March come in like a lion? Time will soon tell. Elsewhere across the nation, if it sounds like a broken and nasty record, it is. The South continues to experience rounds of strong to severe storms in a more April-like pattern. This is now the seventh consecutive week of severe weather in a region now looking at its earliest start to spring in over a half century. And the severe weather isn't just confined to the deep south. Severe storms or possible tornadoes were either observed or detected by radar from the Tennessee Valley to the eastern Great Lakes. The cold side of this same strong storm brought heavy snow from the central plains to the upper Midwest. Meanwhile, the west is quiet this weekend, but more heavy rain, strong winds, and mountain snow will move in next week as another stormy stretch ensues. And finally, the surface waters of the Gulf of Maine nearly set a new high temperature record in 2022, continuing a trend that has made it one of the fastest warming bodies of ocean water on the planet. Our section of the North Atlantic touches Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, and Canada, and is home to rare whales and seabirds, cod, haddock, and the very important lobster fishery. The warming waters have impacted species such as Atlantic puffins that have rendered them nearly extinct, while green crabs have exploded in population. The average sea surface temperature in the Gulf last year was 53.66 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's almost four degrees above the long-term average. This fell short of the warmest year on record by less than a half a degree, and that record warmest year was 2021. Now my exclusive WOMR weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. This afternoon, windy with showers and areas of fog. Highs around 55. Tonight, a good chance of evening showers, then clearing, blustery, and turning much colder. Lows around 27. Saturday, bright sunshine, breezy, and more seasonal. Highs around 38. Sunday, increasing clouds. Highs around 47.
As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will. Let me ask you a serious question. Have you ever taken anything home from work? Pens, pencils, toilet paper, an old computer monitor that's been collecting dust in the corner? Most people will admit they have. Way back in August, when the FBI executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, I started asking myself how in the world sensitive documents ended up in Donald Trump's private office, as well as a storage closet next to his swimming pool. This was sensitive stuff concerning national security interests. And then, more recently, the FBI found a cache of classified documents at the home of President Joe Biden, including a batch inside a locked garage next to a Corvette. Soon after that, about a dozen documents marked classified were found at the home of former Vice President Mike Pence in Indiana. My thinking on all this, and here I want to fully admit that I'm a Democrat, ricocheted from fury at the possibly traitorous acts of Donald Trump to disappointment at the really dumb oversight on the part of Joe Biden then on to contempt for the sanctimony of the former vice president who not long ago insisted he would never be caught with inappropriate material. What we've learned since then, according to J. William Leonard, who served as the Director of Information Security at the National Archives during the Bush-Cheney era, is that the problem is actually fairly common. He says that in the press of everyday business, when you have massive amounts of paper flowing through any government office, it's not unusual for classified and unclassified material to become inadvertently intermingled. So, getting back to my question, is there anybody who hasn't taken stuff home from their job? My briefcase has always had stuff in it that I brought home from the office, work I was intending to get to but just sat around the house because, well, I was home and not in the office. And as the line tended to blur between home and work, I found myself grabbing other stuff as well, files, books, pens, highlighters. It all depended on where I was working, napkin rings when I worked in a restaurant, towels when I worked in a gym, it certainly qualifies as theft as far as the law is concerned. But would you be surprised to know that about 70% of workers admit to having taken stuff home from work and 20% think it's perfectly okay for one of four reasons. One, nobody will miss it in the first place. Two, they're not paid enough. Three, they feel taken for granted. And four, 
They don't like their boss. So, what about you? I had a friend in college who worked as a janitor for a movie theater chain, and about once a week he came home with a huge bag full of popcorn, way too greasy to eat. For years, my roommates who worked in hospitals wore little else besides green surgical scrubs they took from the supply closet. Nobody. Ever looked good in faded green surgical scrubs? I was a writer in residence at a college where the chairman of the English department used to order enormous platters of takeout food for the receptions after poetry readings, far more food than the audience ever ate. I only figured out why one night when I saw him piling all the leftovers into his car as he lived alone. I imagined him dining solely on tacky chicken wings and stale cookies. Many times, taking stuff home from work is more about how undervalued we feel at our jobs than the value of the stuff itself. And if that's the case, I'm surprised there's anything left at most workplaces that's not nailed down. And as far as the intentions of Trump. And Biden and Pence. Well, I'm sure you have your opinions, and like everything else we think about in our country today, they probably depend on your politics. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that's it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday afternoon jazz. It's stirred, not shaken, with Hank and Andy on listener-supported community radio. WOMR.